hppodcraft.com. This is not an artistically rounded off ghost story, and nothing is explained in it, and there seems to be no reason why any of it should have happened. That's no reason why it should not be told. You must have noticed that all the real ghost stories you've ever come close to are like this in these respects. No explanation. No logical coherence. Here is the story. I like the idea of ghost story meaning unexplained phenomena. Although this also seems like a description of life in general. Nothing is explained in it. There seems to be no reason why any of it should have happened. Uh, and with that cheery thought, let's read some ghost stories. Hi, oh, folks. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. We're here at HPPodcraft.com, where we conduct strange studies of strange stories. The studies are strange, and the stories are stranger. Yoda's in the manger. The werewolves are ghosts. <laughs> this is a free show, so try and sue me for that, The Doors. <laughs> it won't work. I made nothing off of your song. No. In fact, I think it cost you quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. Who was that reader? Why, that was Rachel Lackey, the gold standard in ghost-adjacent British servants. That's true. You know, sometimes people take classes to try and find their voice, but when you can listen to Rachel, why even bother? Nah, that's, that's what I point. say. Speaking of which, I, I know you don't have all the details, but I'm hearing on the social media webs that Rachel is cooking up a new podcast, yeah? She is doing a new podcast. It's about parenting and finding yourself after becoming a parent. That's a common problem we find with lots of people that have kids. Kid becomes your mm. life and everything else kind of drops to the wayside, as it should, yeah. to a degree. But it's also about trying to find that balance with your career and your family life. And so she talks to people about how they did it or how they're doing the struggle. As of yet, it's still unnamed. So she's working on a name, getting a website up, doing all that jazz. So when we know, you'll know. Awesome. Well, I have an announcement of my own. Ooh, okay. Uh, and this concerns the Colossus of Elorn, the Clark Ashton Smith story. People know I've been bragging about my genius adaptation of it. There were bold claims that motivated me to get the script done, and I'm going to need some more bold claims to get this over the finish line. So here is what's going to happen. The entire audio movie will be out in October, free as promised, likely a YouTube release. Of course, we'll also drop it here for everybody, so you can wait until then to hear it. But... Since the movie is broken into eight chapters and I'm working on them episodically, I thought, let's start releasing them. That'll help me keep pace. And it might be something that our cultists are interested in. That's the level that we're going to put it up at. The first yes. one will be free for everybody. So you can see if it's something you even want to tune into and be a part of. So uh, keep your ears peeled. This month, chapter one of The Colossus will be out for everybody. And then there'll be two episodes a month for four months. If you're at the cultist level of backing, you'll get those. So The Colossus coming this month. Now, what is the story being read to us by Rachel and uh, who done wrote it? Edith Nesbitt is back on HP Podcraft with her story, which is called The Shadow. We covered From the Dead by Nesbitt before. We did quite a bit of gossiping about her private life, but she's most well known for writing children's books. She wrote The Railway Children, which was made into a movie that was shot here in Keithley, where I live. Strangely enough, they are shooting a sequel to it right now over the next six weeks. They're making it Howarth, and they're setting it during World War II. So me and the boys went down, checked it out. It's all very exciting. We're all we're all really yeah. ex excited around here. Now, are you going to make a lead pipe for that movie like you did for the motion picture Mommy <laughs> 30 years ago? Yeah, a foam lead pipe that was too dense to actually use as a prop because it, the foam <laughs> I used was still pretty strong. So you could actually hit somebody with it. <laughs> Wait a minute. I didn't know that. I never told in you my about head, that. that. That lead pipe was in the movie. Oh, it's in the movie. But... But they couldn't strike someone. They didn't actually strike anybody with it. 
worth it because it was so the, the foam grade that I used was so dense that it, it, it would injure not severely, but it would hurt. It wouldn't feel good. Whereas they, I think what they really wanted was like a really soft foam pipe. I failed to produce that because I was, well, you know, 19 years old, I think. That was a dress rehearsal for this. You got to get the, <laughs> now you're going to do it right for railway children's. <laughs> railway children's, I don't know what it's called. Yes. The sequel. Did they name it yet? Railway children Two. Look who's back. Yeah, I think that's probably it. Something like that. Railway adults by this point, am I right? Yeah. Well, the woman that was a kid in there is like the grandmother now. They've moved the timeline up oh. to World War II. And it's yeah. when they're s sending kids to the countryside because of the bombing. The protagonists oh. are kids from the city that come out to the countryside mm -hmm. uh, and have some adventures. So rail railway bitches then is what you're saying it is. <laughs> railway dogs. It's, yeah, with a Z. But this story was first published as Portent of the Shadow in 1905 in the Index. Yeah, in a word on the theme this month, we don't really have one. We decided to kind of free wheel and just plunder some anthologies. Where did you see this one? You, you're grabbing out of your books. Yes, I got it from Weird Women, Volume 1. Uh, there's also a Weird Women, Volume 2, but this is available for free online, this story. So you can find it. We'll put a link to it yeah. in the show notes. And it's got a copious amount of footnotes in there that'll probably give you more information than you ever wanted about this story. Yeah, there's some information I disagreed with, actually. I was like, hmm. <laughs> we, we have a weird relationship with ghost stories in general, but yeah. I I think we connected the dots pretty well here in terms of when it arrived. Sci-fi to sorcery to English ghosts, the little Atomic Age monster movie palette cleanser in there. I, I think that's about the right way to do it. I was happy to arrive here at the ghost story, I was yeah. I was eager for it. Well, the story begins after a Christmas dance with these three girls. They're all over 20, we find out later. They are in a shared room for the night. The manor house is jam-packed with guests. They've got guys sleeping on the dining room table. <laughs> Sounds like a rager. Yeah. One girl, however, got so worked up at the dance, she passed out and she's in the room next to them. It was phrased in an odd way. I almost missed the girl, but I, had, I went back and read this sentence. There were three of us and another but she had fainted suddenly at the second extra of the Christmas dance, which I think is the fast part of it. Yeah. And had been put to bed in the dressing room next to the room, which we three shared. Yeah. Just in that paragraph, this person's already excluded. Three of us and another. Not There were four of us, but Jane got sick. Yeah. It stuck out. And mm -hmm. I wondered if this was somebody the narrator doesn't like. Is it somebody they're already shunning? Were they glad this person went to bed? And also this party, the big country house is stretched to its utmost, containing guests harboring on sofas, couches, settees, even mattresses on floors. A total rager, like he said. Yeah. Somebody tried to even, it says, sleep in the bathtub, but when they opened their eyes, Levi was in there. <laughs> so even in Victorian times, he was playing that trick. <laughs> Crazy that wound up in an Edith Nesbitt story, but yeah. that's the kind of party it is. Yeah. And it's cold out, and they got a fire going in the room, some hot cocos being passed around. This thing is off the hook. But since it's Christmas time and it's dark and cold in a manor house, they decide to tell some ghost stories. Of course, none of them actually believe in ghosts. In which we all said we did not believe one bit. Do they really or do they not? At least they're saying, yeah. of course, that's silly. Yeah. They name check a few. One is The Phantom Coach by Amelia Edwards. We covered that on their, our show. You were so disappointed that that story wasn't about the ghost of Vince Lombardi. Do you remember that? <laughs> it still haunts me. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, if not a real coach like Vince, then how about coach from Cheers if we need a crowd pleaser? Yeah. They also mentioned The Horribly Strange Bed, a reference to a Wilkie Collins story, The Terribly Strange Bed, a story we have not covered. An author we haven't covered, no? which also haunts me because Ken Haidt brought Wilkie Collins up in his show and I agreed with whatever he was saying like I knew what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And as far as I know, Wilkie Collins is a wacky golf caddy from the 20s. <laughs> I, I never read any of his stuff. 
By the way, total aside, there's this film called Bombshell with Gene Harlow from the early 30s. I recommend checking out the beginning of it because the opening shows how people are driven to king and yellow level madness by the movie business. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a really great promise to a movie that's not so good. But if you know somebody in your life who has oldie timey talk disorder where they're doing this kind of thing all the time... <laughs> It's something I've been afflicted with in the past. If you do comedy or improv or something like that, you know a few of these folks. Have yeah. them watch that movie and they will be cured of it. Aww. Because it is the most annoying, high-octane, 1920s patter I've ever heard in my life. I don't ever want to hear anything like that again. And I used to love that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so to catch up on the story again, the girl references Amelia Edwards. You referenced Vince Lombardi. I referenced Coach from Cheers. <laughs> she referenced Wilkie Collins. I referenced Ken Height and Gene Harlow. Uh, well, where are we now? Uh, she also references Sir Walter Scott's The Tapestry Chamber and Rhoda Broughton's Nothing But the Truth. Also stories we haven't read, but a classic ghost story setup. There is a quiet rapping at the door, and it's Mrs. Eastwich, the housekeeper. She saw the lights on and was worried about the girl that had passed out. The narrator tells her the girl is just asleep. Our narrator was going to shoo Mrs. Eastwich away when the youngest of the three girls invites her in, something that never would have occurred to our narrator, who shamefully confesses she never really saw Mrs. Eastwich as a person, just the help. Right, and it's Miss Eastwich. She's not married. Right. The important. And this version you copied into, you, you referenced, uh, copied in here, it has footnotes from M. M. Grant Kellermeyer. This right away is when I started disagreeing, because he says, the youngest seems to represent the type of woman Nesbitt hated in the core of her being. So a little like how you said at the beginning we got a little trapped in her personal life and last time we uh -huh. covered her yeah, yeah i feel like this person is as well because i did not feel that way the youngest is kind to the woman mm -hmm. because she doesn't really know any better but to be kind yeah. to miss eastwich yeah. she's silly in that way which isn't really silly and the narrator self-admonishes despite whatever she however she words it mm -hmm. she wishes she'd thought to treat Miss Eastwich like a human. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's it's not a flattering look. And maybe there's jealousy at this younger girl being so foolishly forward in these staid Victorian times, but it's not like she's being praised for her appearance. You know what I mean? It's a good thing. And it causes a little introspection on the part of the narrator, who also isn't necessarily not familiar because of the status of Miss Eastwich, but it says, the younger girl did not know Miss Eastwich as we others did, did not know how her persistent silence had built a wall around her, a wall that no one dared to break down with the commonplaces of talk or the littlenesses of mere human relationship. Miss Eastwich's silence had taught us to treat her as a machine. And as other than the machine, we never dreamed of treating her. So there's more to it than just her status. It felt even a little more like seeing a teacher at the gas station when you're young. <laughs> what? This person has a life outside? Yeah. I didn't even know these were people, these yeah. people I see at school. But then the burn does come on the youngest explicitly when she says she was young, crude, ill-balanced, subject to blind calf-like impulses. Whew. She was also the heiress of a rich tallow chandler, but that has nothing to do with this part of the story. And that aside almost felt like she had to get it out there because she found herself liking this girl. Yeah. She had a, the narrator, the character of the narrator says that. I don't conflate the author's opinions about the world with the character. This is a deliberate thing where she felt guilty that she hadn't done it and then reminded herself that this girl sucks. Yeah. She's very human. <laughs> yeah. And it was much more complicated than what was suggested by the footnote. Yes. Uh, that's all. I totally agree with you. I was thinking that she is a character that is naive, but her naivete is actually making her a better person. Totally. Which kind of goes against what the guy's saying about her being, yeah. being this type of woman that Nesbitt hated. Uh, obviously, she's a good enough writer to know that we're going to like this character. That's what I'm saying. If she was, I feel like if it was the type of person 
that the author hates that we would have come down not liking her at the end of the story, and that's just not the case. No. In fact, she comes off better than anybody, including the narrator, which is a neat trick. The youngest of the three has Miss East, which sit down and she gets her some cocoa. Uh, she smiles and the narrator notes that she's never genuinely seen Miss Eastwich smile until now. Sad. The youngest has her sit in the comfiest chair and explains that they're telling ghost stories. The narrator puts a shawl around Mrs. Eastwich's shoulders because she really wants to do something to make her feel welcome and that's all she could kind of come up with. She apologizes for not inviting her in before saying she didn't think she would want to hear girls chatter. Which isn't an apology. No. Oh, I'm sorry I didn't let you in here before, but I had a reason. You know, I, <laughs> she's so defensive, and that shawl is such a paltry contribution. I agreed with the footnote guy there where he was like, well, I guess that might make you warmer. <laughs> you know, it's obviously to just kind of, hey, look, see, I was nice too. You know, just kind of sign in your name to something yeah. that you didn't do. Mm -hmm. And then check this opinion out, because there is another girl there. I wondered about her. Well, the narrator says the third girl, who was really of no account, and that's why I haven't said anything about her before poured cocoa for our guests. So, you know, why not just say Samantha poured her some cocoa? Also, if she's of no account, then you wouldn't say what she did, but you did. I think I know why. I think it's doubtless the author is drawing on her own life and her opinions about people. But when the first character was described, it was there were three of us and another. That's odd. And mm -hmm. it was set off to me. But then she burns the youngest girl down. And then this third one, she says, I don't even give her the time of day. To me, that was a bit of misdirection by the author to make the first instance of distancing seem less like an oddity and more like part of this character's pattern. Right. Which made me bury it. I stopped worrying about it. Mm -hmm. That's very skillful. Now, the youngest one is talking about ghost stories still, hoping Miss Eastwich might jump in. And she complains about how they're always a friend of a friend of a friend kind of thing. And they can't be believed. But Miss Eastwich has a story, and she seems a bit reluctant to tell it, and the narrator says she doesn't have to, but the youngest one pushes her to, just because she's a bit oblivious that she seems a little troubled. Miss Eastwich is feeling a little apprehensive about telling the story. But there's more of this jockeying here, and in this conversation, Miss Eastwich quotes some Dickens, and the narrator says, will it be believed that the little Dickens quotation pierced one more keenly than the new smile or the new voice? So she says, I'm surprised this thing can even read. Oof. I mean, she's just looking worse and worse. And then the youngest says, all the ghost stories are so beautifully rounded off, a murder committed on the spot or a hidden treasure or a warning. I think that makes them harder to believe. The most horrid ghost story I ever heard was one that was quite silly. So this character's over here doing our podcast yeah. while the narrator's just judging people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. The only thing I ever knew of was, was hearsay, uh, Eastwich says, till just the end. That was a cool setup. And then the narrator says, I knew she was only telling this story now because she was proud. And this seems the only way to pay for the fire and the cocoa and the laying of that arm around her neck. By the way, when the youngest put her arm around the neck, she goes, her arm's probably better than mine anyway for something like that. I mean, there's a lot of <laughs> odd yeah, yeah. things. Not odd, actually very human. Also, she's still only seeing the economy and exchange of things. I took it on the surface that Miss Eastwich was relaxed and happy that someone's talking to her, so she's going to participate. The narrator thinks, well, she's only doing this because we gave her some nice things. Mm -hmm. It's an economy. That's the way she sees it. Yeah. Now, after some hemming and hawing, Miss Eastwich begins her story. And that's when it's mentioned that the girls are over 20 because she's actually considering whether to tell this to them or not. She goes, oh, they're not babies. They're over 20. So this is past NC-17, whatever she's about to lay oh, out. Oh, whoa. You have to be 20 to hear this stuff. But early 1900s, 20 is like 2021's 
12. Yeah, I know. Well, you know what? I, somebody correct me on this because I'm going to get the age wrong, but I read something about how in the 19th century, people didn't reach their maximum height until they were 25 or 26. What? Because that's how nutrition and science and medicine and things were going. So you were still growing well into your 20s. Whoa, that's strange. Well, now you know half a fact that I overheard. <laughs> and I'm sure it's true. Her story begins 20 years or more ago when she had these two friends that she loved more than anyone in the world, and they got married. It says, she paused, and I knew just in what way she had loved each of them. The youngest of us, how awfully nice of you. Do go on. She patted the youngest shoulder, and I was glad that I had understood, and that the youngest of all hadn't. Yeah, sort of condescending. At the same time, she does she does start to care for Misty Switch in a way when she sees what's really going on here. So I don't hate the narrator. I think that's coming across. I just think that she's young, but she sees, oh, wait a minute. She's about to tell us some personal life stuff. Yeah. And the couple that she was friends with married each other and she was excluded. Okay, I see. Or she she was into the guy and her friend was the one that ended up getting the guy that she wanted. Right. Could be that as well. I think that that, yeah, that's what she's assuming. Miss Eastwich explains that she didn't see them for a year or two after they got married, but then was called to visit them after the wife became ill. She says that they were the only people in the world that she really cared for. When she arrived, she was expecting the house to be a creepy old thing, but it turned out to be a nice new build, a villa. The husband met her at the door, but he looked rough. Yeah, there's a funny moment. Miss Eastwich says, he met me at the door, thanked me for coming and asked me to forgive the past. And the youngest girl says, what past? <laughs> the way it's presented, what past, said the high priestess of the inapropos. <laughs> you know, I suppose he meant because they hadn't invited me before or something. Miss Eastwich is a little embarrassed that, you know, her opinions are leaking out. Uh -huh. But the, she did say our past, so I didn't think it was so wrong to ask her a question like that. No. And the narrator adjusts the shawl around Eastwich so she can turn and mouth, shut up, you little idiot. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's from the story. That's actually in the story. Yeah, I'm not making that up. That's no, no. The, story. Uh, the wife seemed to be in better health than the husband, but she still seemed distant. After the wife went to bed, Eastwich and the husband sat by the fireplace. He smoked a pipe and poured himself a drink, which he barely touched. They sort of lured her there with an illness explanation, but then it turns out to be something else. I was also curious why the wife, if she's not ill, is going to bed and just leaving these two together. Why is Miss Eastwich going to stay with them if there isn't an illness? This was the first very odd stuff to me where there's under the surface things going on. Anybody who's been in a situation where you have somebody you used to date that married an old friend, I mean... I just don't see this particularly happening <laughs> or it not being really stressful. People yeah. change, but gosh, it, it's hard. It would be hard to listen to the story and not ask a million questions <laughs> before getting to the ghost part. Whoa, wait, wait a minute. You stayed with them? Yeah. Now he explains that something is going on. He would think it was a haunting, but the house has just been built and they are the first people to live there. So it can't be a ghost. So she asked him if he had heard anything or seen anything, but he hadn't. Not yet. He explained that there was something just out of vision, but not there, and that he could almost hear something, but never actually hear anything. And she just thought maybe he was working too hard and that maybe I should just cheer him up. He also brought up the fact that this may be a curse, but she said anyone he might have wronged forgave him a long time ago. It was I, not the youngest of us, who knew the name of that person wronged and forgiving. She, she doesn't know that for a fact, but she's congratulating <laughs> herself. <laughs> yes. He expressed to her that she shouldn't let his wife know what's going on. And Margaret, that's Miss Eastwich's first name, promised not to say anything. He always called me Margaret. You see, we'd been such old friends. Well, that's pretty familiar for the time, if I'm to understand it. Mm -hmm. Clearly, there was they were together. 
at some point. And also just a little on the nature of this haunting, it was pretty gripping writing. There's a sort of feeling, I can't describe it. I've seen nothing and I've heard nothing, but I've been so near to seeing and hearing, just near, that's all. And something follows me about. Only when I turn around, there's never anything. Only my shadow. Who hasn't felt that way? Oh, yeah. Now, as time went on, she began to feel the things that he talked about. Something behind her, but nothing there. Almost seeing something, then almost hearing something, but then not. On the staircase, the feeling used to be so awful that I have had to bite my lips till they bled to keep myself from running upstairs at full speed. That's an old hit. We talked about that stuff real early on the show. <laughs> the You know, running up the stairs because you're scared there's something down there. Yeah. And she says, I, the reason she didn't do it is because she's afraid if she ran, she'd go mad at the top. I thought was kind of cool. <laughs> Finally, one night she was going into the kitchen. The servants were all in bed and she saw that a cupboard was open, one that they just kept boxes in. Just to mention, she's in there boiling milk, which by Wuthering Heights standards is a luxurious meal. <laughs> she happens to glance at this cupboard. And as I looked, I knew that now it was not going to be almost anymore. Yet, I said Mabel, not because I thought it could be Mabel who was crouching down there, half in and half out of the cupboard. The thing was grey at first, and then it was black. And when I whispered Mabel, it seemed to sink down till it lay like a pool of ink on the floor. And then its edges drew in, and it seemed to flow like the ink when you tilt up the paper you've spilt it on. And it flowed into the cupboard till it was all gathered into the shadow there. I saw it go quite plainly. Ooh. And she screamed at this, and the husband came downstairs. She lied and told him that she burned her hand on the stove, but he knew. He knew she'd been reading the vaults of Yovambus. <laughs> That's kind of what it reminded me of. He confronted her and asked what she saw, and she asked him to tell her what he had actually seen. Now, she believes that he was holding back, and he finally confesses what he'd actually experienced, and that was the exact same thing that she just saw. Then we looked at each other and said we were both mad, and thanked God that Mabel was at least sane. And from then on, the thing was around. At first, mostly at night, but then any time. And just as she would catch sight of it, it would go from gray to black, crouch down, until it melted into the shadows. And still the sound was in the house. The sound that I could just not hear. I thought this stuff was interesting. At last, one morning early, I did hear it. It was close behind me, and it was only a sigh. It was worse than the thing that crept into the shadows. That's some pretty creepy stuff. Yeah. And this went on for a while until the wife had her baby. I didn't even know she was pregnant. I think that was a reveal in the story. That's what all this was about. She heard me asking, what the heck is she doing around the house all the time while she's staying there? But I guess just helping out. Yeah. Because this, I don't know how long she stays, but I assume she's very pregnant because how would she stay longer than a couple of months? Yeah. You know, doesn't she have a life to get back to or something? The fact that she's a servant now later tells me that it's not like she's a wealthy gadfly who can just jet off to someone's house and hang out for months at a time. Again, he stressed that she's not supposed to say anything to the wife about it, even though Miss Eastwich is freaked out. And the sightings stopped for a bit. No sightings, no sounds. The husband and Margaret Eastwich agreed that as soon as the wife was ready, he was going to take her and the baby to the seaside and Margaret would move everything into a new house that the husband had already purchased. <laughs> They're going to move on to a new life together that's going to be much happier and Margaret's going to facilitate this for them. So it's like history repeating itself, maybe. Did something like this happen before? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't know. The weeks went by and Mabel's baby was born. He was gayer than I had seen him since his marriage, almost like his old self. When I said goodnight to him, he said a lot of things about having my having been a comfort to them both. I hadn't done anything much, of course, but still I am glad he said them. Is she? I don't know. Everything was great and hopeful and everything was just fine, but it wasn't. On 
A quiet night, too quiet, Mrs. Eastwich went upstairs and got that feeling again. She peeped into the room where the baby and the mother and the nurse were, and they were all asleep. It all looked fine, but as she walked back to her own room, she heard that unhearable sigh and turned to see the shadow crouch and slink under the wife's door. She went back and looked, but everything seemed fine. However, we find out that it wasn't. That night, the mother died. In a very, well, it's some monkey's paw stuff because it, the paragraph says, I went back, I opened the door a listening inch. Love that, listening inch. Yeah. All was still, and then I heard a sigh close behind me. I opened the door and went in. The nurse and the baby were asleep. Mabel was asleep too. This is the wife. The wife, yeah. She looked so pretty, like a tired child. The baby was cuddled up in one of her arms with its tiny head against her side. I prayed then that Mabel might never know the terrors that he and I had known, that those little ears might never hear any but pretty sounds, those clear eyes never see any but pretty sights. I did not dare to pray for a long time after that because my prayer was answered. She never saw, never heard anything more in this world. And now I could do nothing more for him or for her. I wished the best for her, and the only way for that to happen was for her to die. Whoops! <laughs> you know? Hmm. It was put that way deliberately. The funeral was the last time that she saw the husband. His mother came the next day, and Eastwich says that his mother never liked her. Yeah, she got out of there before mom could lay eyes on her. And obviously there's some history, you know, we're just not going to get to. Mm -hmm. But if a mother disapproves of you, there's that's obviously probably linked up with why they didn't get married. This really mimics conversations I have with about everybody in, in a certain respect because people drop things in the middle. Of, you, know, you know, I used to be a butler. And anyway, this is not, that's not the point of my story. But and I go, what? At the funeral for Mabel, we get this. It says, uh, I took his hand to lead him away. So they were at the coffin of the dead wife, uh -huh. and she takes his hand, and they're walking away in the church, like a wedding. Mm -hmm. At the door, we both turned. It seemed to us that we heard a sigh. He would have sprung to her side, and I don't know what mad, glad hope. But at that instant, we both saw it. Between us and the coffin, first gray, then black, it crouched an instant, then sank and liquefied and was gathered together and drawn till it ran into the nearest shadow. And the nearest shadow was the shadow of Mabel's coffin. In that moment, it felt a little like the woman who stole her man got punished for taking him. Mm -hmm. The shadow staying with her in the coffin. Yeah. So they're going to walk out holding hands. And it's almost like a little bit of triumph. But obviously, it didn't go well. Because she did see him only one time after that. And that was at his funeral. Where there was a second wife crying over him, not her. Miss mm. Eastwich says, it's not a cheerful story, is it? And it doesn't lead anywhere. I've never told anyone else. I think it was seeing his daughter that brought it all back. <gasps> and they're like, wait, whoa, whoa, say what? What are you talking about? And she says, oh yeah, that girl that passed out from dancing, that's their daughter. But then she sees something after she says that. She stands up in horror, looking at something, and the narrator looks and almost sees something, but doesn't. But then they all hear a quivering sigh just behind them. It was I who caught up the candle. It dripped all over my trembling hand and was dragged by Miss Eastwich to the girl who had fainted during the second extra. But it was the youngest of all whose lean arms were round the housekeeper when we turned away. And that have been round her many a time since, in the new home where she keeps house for the youngest of us. The doctor who came in the morning said that Mabel's daughter had died of heart disease, which she had inherited from her mother. It was that that had made her faint during the second extra. But I have sometimes wondered whether she might not have inherited something from her father. I had never been able to forget the look on her dead face. And that's the end of the story. That's I don't good. know if you forget many looks on dead faces, do you? I mean, that's uh, <laughs> something a little remarkable, unless you're a mortician. 
I had some issue with some of the, I just want to say real quick, yeah. M. Grant Kellermeyer is a, a cool person, has some some books I believe I have around here, mm-hmm. uh, that there's a mummy book or something I have. So, I, you know, legit points of view, but I just kind of had some disagreements about some of these footnotes, if you want to run through them real quick. Yeah. One of the things that he posits is that this story might be talking about syphilis, that he was a philanderer, she was somebody that he philandered with and maybe had a, a relationship with Miss Eastwich. Maybe since she's help, you know, and he was having an affair with her or something like that, maybe that is what happened, but that this disease was being spread and this was the thing that caused complications with the pregnancy and caused her to die and was passed on to her daughter. It, the dark shadow sort of a symbol for that. Yeah. And, and it's almost like it comes up so many times. I'm like, are you in the pocket of big syphilis? But <laughs> the thing is that he's decoding a lot of this language to find these hints. And it's likely there is something like that. And, and, and the footnotes are careful to say it, it may not be this, but it's something like that. But syphilis fits because I don't think it's the fact that she was a servant because they were young. I mean, I think there was just a love triangle, you know, mm-hmm. and that he was together with her. He gave her syphilis, which is probably why she's barren now, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and unmarried and didn't tell the other woman that he had it, which pro- might have possibly been the reason for these complications in the pregnancy that killed her. Mm-hmm. And it's the dark secret that they have that they're sharing together mm. and almost why he has to return to her. But as the old saying goes, syphilis alone can't keep you together. So he goes on and he married. That's not a saying, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, he goes on and marries somebody somebody else. I wish you could see the look uh, on my face. I was like, what? <laughs> what is that you're like, saying? Th- yeah, I'm just, see, you were like me with Ken talking about Wilkie. You're just like, sure. Yeah, I love that saying. <laughs> But yeah, the footnote is there's a strong suggestion that he's sorry for more than disappointing romantic hopes. It's implied that they have had, that they may have been sexual partners at one time. Further evidence points to an even more glaring crime. Miss Eastwich may have contracted syphilis from a friend and may now be barren. This is what he's pushing. Mm -hmm. Is the husband a philanderer who has contracted a vicious VD, passed it on to his wife and gravely complicated her new pregnancy? Victorian innuendo throughout the story hints that she has had sexual relations with her friend and that she may be barren, a frequent result of syphilitic infection. And and he's hinging on her bio a bit. Where do I see this? It says, uh, if Eastwich is the Nesbitt standby, so stop there. I don't think she is. No. So that was my issue. But... So he's, he is saying if this love triangle is particularly sad because she envisions herself as the other woman. Mm. In real life, her husband had an affair with her best friend. She was impregnated twice. Remember, this is what we were discussing. Yeah, and when uh-huh. when the husband demand and when she demanded the mistress's eviction, he threatened to leave her. And so she wound up adopting that kid and then another kid that wasn't hers. So that stuff was going on. But I mean, that's probably going to give you some better insight into relationships between a menage, right? Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I don't know. For me, he says later that shadow is a symbol of guilt, truth, and sin. I took out of it without these notes. I felt like that maybe they have something together that he can't find with this other person who is maybe more socially acceptable for him to be with. And it poisons the relationship. I think that that's why the house is new. It's brand new. Let's go get the brand new thing. We're getting away from old things. And he can't get her off his mind. But you can't ever really get rid of those old things that are going to come with you. Yeah. So first the shape, the, sh- the shadow appears and then he goes, I wonder if she'll see it too. She gets there and she does see it. So it is about them. Mm-hmm. And then when it's a sickness though, they have a toxic relationship for whatever reason. Maybe it's syphilis, but there was a reason not to be in it, but it still kills this new one. And then when he tries to move on to another one, it eventually kills him. And I feel like that's really what it's what it's about. The, the syphilis could be the thing, but I... I felt it was just as strong a case that maybe they really had a deep abiding love of some kind, but it's not a good one. There's a lot in here about him possibly being an adulterer and um, there's a description of him as being kind, attentive and sensitive, but not strong, not manly. 
which, you know, these footnotes read as he gives into his impulses and was probably an adulterer. Eh. To me, that read as he wasn't manly to stand up for what he wanted with her. And so he did what his mother wanted him to do and marry this other sweet person. That's what that looked like to me. I agree. I mean, maybe he's right. Obviously, he's done a lot more study and research into the story than, than I have. But upon reading it, that is how I felt. The syphilis thing, it, maybe it influenced the writing of it, but uh, it feels like it's, it's about more than that. Well, you know, she wrote it this way so that you'd ask those questions, and it's just as a legitimate a take on anything as I have. Yeah. I wish there were footnotes on everything for me to disagree with. That's why discussion <laughs> is cool. Uh, yeah. Someone puts forth an idea, and then you say, hell no. But, you know, I really respect the, I think I was coming off a little, <laughs> like I don't like this person or something. Oh, no. But it was just, no, uh, no, no. I was, well, I was peeking at the footnotes as I was reading and going, what? No way. That's all I'm saying. I was gonna, that's different. But that's that's the fun of literature is how you're going to interpret it. What are we doing next week? Do you know? Actually, we're going to pick up a story from Weird Women Volume 2, Outside the House by Bessie Kiffin-Taylor. Outside the House. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I want to thank a reader. My wife, Rachel Lackey, please, if you would, look at the show notes, click on the link and sign up for Rachel's new podcast. It's going to be very interesting. She's an entertaining woman, my wife, and she's going to talk to some really interesting people about their lives. And how much Star Trek content is going to be involved in that? I think about zero. <laughs> <laughs> like has Star Trek informed your practice? No. God, I hope not. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, that's all we have for this week. And don't forget to keep your ears peeled for uh, chapter one of The Colossus, The Flight of the Necromancer. Woo! Get ready. That's all we have for this week. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to HP Podcast. Strange studies of strange stories. HPPodcraft.com. Ah!